It's definitely a pitfall that uh, is experienced by a lot of entry-level guys. As far as the reluctance to make changes is concerned, it's an easy mistake to make. At the end of the day, if you have a test day, if you're not competing professionally, there's no real reason to not try something. And let's say that's you've made a change and it's not a step in the right direction, you've learned what not to do or you've learned what your car doesn't like. So there's always two sides of that coin. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Andre from DNA Autosport in New South Wales, Australia. DNA Autosport is a mechanical workshop, but their focus is more around race car setup, maintenance, and track day preparation. We took the chance to have a chat with Andre about what is involved with a track day, and I'm talking here from a enthusiast standpoint, not a professional race car driver. I know there's a lot of people out there with a modified road car and maybe you're interested in sampling your car on a racetrack for the very first time but you don't know where to get started. Well this interview is going to be perfect for you. We talked to Andre about what's involved with getting your car on track, how you even go about that in the first place. We talk about some of the main things you should be focusing on on your car before you take it to the track to ensure that you get the most out of your track day. And then once that bug bites, and I'm pretty sure it's going to, and you want to go faster, we talk about the different options you've got in terms of developing both your car as well as your own capability behind the wheel and where it's best to be focusing your efforts and your hard-earned money. Before we get into this chat, for those who are new to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune EFI, build performance engines, construct wiring harnesses. We also cover race driver education, how to set up your suspension for your race car, how to analyse data and fabrication topics as well. All of our courses are delivered via high definition video modules that you can watch from anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection. And as a podcast listener, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75. That'll get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. We'll put a link in the description to that coupon code and you can head to hpacademy.com forward slash courses for a full list of our courses. All right, let's get into our interview now. Welcome to the podcast. Andre, thanks for joining us today. Uh, let's get started, as we always do, by finding out what happened in your background. How, for a start, did you get interested in cars? Uh, look, to be honest with you, I was actually really interested in bikes in my younger years, and it wasn't really until I began my engineering degree that I started to get a taste for the automotive industry, and it all kind of sunk in from there. Okay, so it's normally when we interview people, there's a link. You're probably about 95%, like 95% of our guests where you've got an engineering degree. We'll dive into that. But normally I sort of find that that is grown from the original passion in the automotive industry and that link obviously is pretty clear. Sounds like you went the other way. So what drove you to the engineering degree? Oh, look, to be honest with you, it was a bit of a last minute decision. I only kind of decided that I wanted to follow engineering maybe halfway through year 12, which is pretty late in comparison to a lot of my colleagues. But maybe like every other engineer playing with Lego or building, uh, you know, the Technic sets and things like that. But I, I just had a fascination with how things work, but I guess not only how they work, but why they work. 
Sure. Obviously, there's a, a lot of disciplines when it comes to engineering. It is a wide field. Am I safe in assuming that mechanical engineering is the direction you were sort of pursuing? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, they did a degree in mechanical engineering at uh, the University of Sydney. Okay. So at what point through that degree or post that degree did you sort of start connecting the dots and, and see how that could feed into a, a career in the auto industry? The first couple of years of that degree is all fairly standard across the board. You're typically learning a lot of your mathematics and physics uh, subjects, but it's not until the third and fourth years where I started to be able to have a couple of electives here and there and I guess really dive into some in-depth topics that I started to really have an appreciation for the automotive industry. And my last year, my final thesis was actually an automotive aerodynamic thesis with Land Rover Jaguar. So that's where I really started to get an appreciation and understanding for what goes on, not just the competitive automotive world, but just the automotive world in general. Now, something I haven't asked any of our guests before, and it's just on my mind right now as you're talking about this this thesis and an engineering degree in general. Obviously, the engineering degree from all of our guests in the past kind of becomes a bit of a gateway to the auto industry. And in some areas, it's going to be a prerequisite for you actually getting employment. I'm interested, sort of a lot of our, our listeners will probably sort of thinking, looking at their career paths and what is ahead of them, particularly if they're a bit younger and maybe considering this path of, of an engineering degree. What level of, of competence, skill, intellect, I guess is the right term, do you need? Do you actually need to be a rocket scientist is what I'm asking to actually do an engineering degree? How difficult realistically is it for the average person? Uh, look, it's definitely not easy. I mean, I don't know if I would say that you'd have to be born with it, so to speak, in order to undertake it, but it's extremely intensive as far as the content is concerned, but also a lot of the theories and a lot of the, uh, I guess, mechanics of what you're learning are quite in depth. So for someone who isn't mathematically inclined or someone who doesn't really grasp, let's call it mathematical law or theory well, would definitely struggle. It is, you definitely get thrown in deep end from day one. All right, so that's probably scared a lot of people off that maybe aren't strong in mathematics. But at the same time, it is important to understand you know, what you're potentially getting yourself in for. And uh, unfortunately, like it or not, maths does become a pretty uh, key element of a, a lot that goes into the auto industry. So it kind of, I guess, is what it is. In terms of your thesis, you said you're doing aerodynamics for Land Rover Jaguar. I mean, that sounds like uh, you went pretty deep pretty quickly, yet as we're going to dive into this interview, your specialty really now is, is suspension development. So I'm interested, how did you get involved in the aerodynamics side in your final year? My thesis supervisor at the time was a gentleman who I looked up to a fair bit and I knew that outside of his university work did a fair bit in the automotive aero industry. So essentially when I approached him about potentially doing a thesis with him, you know, this is this is the first thing that he offered up. So I was quick to snatch that up and I'm glad that I did because I didn't just kind of stick with the aero side of things. I really started to look at the car as a whole in my own time and say, okay, if, you know, you've got a car that's producing X amount of downforce or X amount of drag, what are the other elements of the car that need to work with this in order to make it kind of work as a package? And that's what made me really begin to just scratch the surface of suspension development before obviously, you know, taking off and following the aero thesis. 
Okay. At this point, are you sort of developing your own passion for motorsport? Have you got project cars? Are you getting involved with track days or any form of motorsport? What's going on at that point in your life? Personally, I like to do the smart thing and drive other people's cars. Genius. <laughs> um, so I don't actually have uh, a project car of my own, but with the schedule that I have as far as my track day commitments for our clients, but also uh, with the workshop in general, it's it wouldn't be feasible for me to have one, to be honest with you. Plus, I would prefer to keep my focus for my clients rather than my own little project. That makes perfect sense. I guess probably in a broader sense, I'm trying to join the dots on on how you sort of developed DNA Autosport and we'll get into what DNA Autosport is and its history, background and what you do in a, in a moment. But you know, most people sort of don't wake up one day with no previous personal motorsport background and go, hey, you know what, I'm going to start a business that caters to motorsport clients. So yeah, give us a bit of, bit of an idea of how that sort of came to be. So post my engineering degree, the first job that I found uh, was that at Bilstein Suspension. Uh, essentially having looked in, like I said, looking looked into the suspension side of things as far as how it works with aerodynamics, I thought, okay, you know, this might be a good thing. So applied for the position, uh, was successful there and essentially really got into the world of automotive suspension, uh, revalving, reconditioning, designing dampers from scratch, things like that. And I took a bit of a liking to it. I understood the concepts. I understood the mechanics behind it all and ran with it from there. At the end of my position there, I, I started working for a company called TT Suspension, who you may know working underneath uh, Dian Ninich. Nice. Uh, working there, you know, again, started to further my understanding of suspension, uh, looked into the chassis design side of things and uh, I guess designing setups from scratch, you know, taking a tube frame car and saying, okay, how much damping does this need? What, what sort of spring rates is this thing going to need, etc. And then from there, uh, Dion moved on to pursue other things and I decided it was time to give it a crack on my own. Okay. I think in general, for those who aren't deeply into suspension and particularly here talking about the inner workings of a, of a damper, the valving, et cetera, and, and how that affects the dynamics of the whole automotive application, I think it's kind of viewed as maybe a bit of black magic. Like no one really knows what's going on inside that damper. So how much control did you have working for Bill Steen on the way the damper works and you know the knock-on effect of that, how does that affect the way the car performs? Another element that I'm interested in that sort of comes into this, what tools were you did you have available in terms of validation and simulation of the damper performance? Or was it a case of trial and error in the real world? To to start at the beginning of that, as far as the workings of the damper are concerned, Bill Steen, as in the mother company, had a strict set of guidelines that we had to follow. So for a particular force at a particular speed, the gas force should be in this realm, etc. So we had a lot of control over the design of the damper as far as the force velocity graphs, the valving itself, the length, stroke, things like that. But they all had to be within the box that was outlined by Bill Steen. Uh, or Bill Stein, I should say. Uh, Actually, let's just pause for a moment there and clarify, because we haven't mentioned yet, you're based in Australia. I'm taking a, a pretty safe guess here that you're working for Bill Stein or Bill Stein in Australia. So you've still got the potential to actually build custom one-offs as well as rebuild, as opposed to sending them back to the head company. Yeah, that's correct. So essentially, we were an extension or an arm of the mother company, and yeah, we were free to design as we pleased, 
as long as it kind of remained within the the safe guidelines and the design parameters of uh, that were dictated by Bilstein. All right. So, what sort of dampers are you working on and, and developing and building here? Is is this general road car stuff for the Australian domestic market, or motorsport related, or a bit of everything? It was a little bit of everything, but I would say the focus was on road cars as well as four by fours, four wheel drives. There was obviously a motorsport, uh, you know, some race cars and, and whatnot thrown in there, but it was a smaller percentage of the overall work. Sure. In terms of that, that's a really broad spectrum and the dynamics, the requirements, the functionality are obviously dramatically different from a road car to a race car to an off-road 4x4. In terms of the actual workload and difficulty of developing the product, is one more tricky than another? And if so, why? I wouldn't say, I mean, I would say one's not necessarily more tricky, but I I would say that there's more to consider for a race car, for example, than there would be for a four-wheel drive. Uh, You know, you can have 10 Evos that are all running different tires, that are running different power, that are, you know, some might be tube frames, some might be, you know, OEM chassis. So there's more to consider with the race car side of things. However, there are definitely some uh, difficulties that you can come across when trying to design 4x4 suspension. Sure. And in terms of the other part of my question, are you doing the validation in the real world or is there simulation that comes before actually manufacturing the product? I wouldn't say there was any simulation as far as, uh, I guess, a validation model that we would use to say, okay, this valving is going to work. There was more so, a lot of it was based on the experience of the company. So, you know, the company had been around for, I mean, the the mother company has been around for 50, 60 years and that business there had been around for a smaller portion of that, but still many, many years. So it had a lot of the data that the company already had was experimental data. So, you know, let's throw this in the car based on the weight of a similar car that we know works. Let's start with this. Okay, let's take it for a test drive. The front feels underdamped. Let's make a change, et cetera. Yeah, okay. One of the tools we often see associated with suspension development is a shock dyno. And I'll be the first to put my hand up and say I've only got a cursory understanding of what the dyno does. Well, maybe I know what it does, but how that data is actually used. So, from your perspective, working with, with this sort of uh, equipment, how critical is that shock dyno and what is it able to tell you? And from there, what adjustments can you make to a damper to, to make it better suited to the application? A damper dyno is extremely important as far as you know any suspension shop or damper developer or anything like that. A dyno is a core part of your business. As far as what it can tell you, it can tell you a lot more than just the valving that's inside the shock. It can tell you things like the force on the rod, so the gas force effects in the damper. It can also tell you things like seal friction. So for a lot of entry-level dampers that use substandard seals, let's call it, you can actually see how much friction that seal has over a higher-end, higher-quality seal, which does make a difference. Extremely important uh, piece of machinery, and what you can do with it is 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 endless as far as a damper is concerned. Uh, just coming back to that friction element, because this is something I, I have heard discussed, uh, particularly interesting around it was uh, rally suspension. Am I right in saying the term is referred to as stiction? Yeah, correct. I'm not sure how true this is, but I was told at one point that the word stiction was put in the dictionary for dampers. So damper developers are the ones that came up with that word. But essentially, yes, stiction is a friction element that uh, is exhibited by by every damper. Okay, so 
I mean, for those listening who've got absolutely no idea what we're talking about here, it literally is the friction force that you're going to have to overcome before the damper will, will initially start moving. So that initial force that you've got to overcome is going to be higher, and then to continue the damper moving at a steady speed, the force reduces. Is that about right? Yeah, correct. Uh, in, uh, in fewer words, it's exactly what it is. Okay. I mean, to me, again, from an uninitiated perspective, I, I can understand that that stiction is a thing that exists. I mean, in the big scheme of things, when we've got these dampers moving so fast over big hits, it would seem almost irrelevant. Now, I know that damper technology, damper manufacturers, they go to extremes and significant expense to reduce the stiction, which suggests it actually is quite relevant. But give me a better understanding of why that's the case. So as far as, let's look at a rally car, for example, these cars are all simulated. Uh, a lot of the development that goes into the suspension work, not just dampers, but the chassis as well, is all simulated. So if you're trying to take a model off a computer, which looks at a lot of ideal situations, a lot of ideal variables, and then you bring it into the real world, there are always going to be bits and pieces that get in your way. So stiction is one of those things. Essentially, if you've said that this model, you know, after a 2G hit is going to exhibit a force of X, the stiction force inside that damper is going to fight against you, essentially. So yes, it may not seem like it matters a whole lot, especially if that damper is moving at over, you know, one meter a second. However, if you are trying to model absolutely everything, this is just one of those little variables that can get in your way. So high-end damper manufacturers will try to reduce this as much as possible. The other side of it is, of course, you know, if the friction force is too great, it will start to also add to the heat that's being developed by these dampers. So especially in the rally world, I mean, every degree you can take out of the damper is a benefit. Without trying to do this particular topic to death, when we look at the, the way the suspension operates, we've got... Um low speed operation and high speed operation I'm not talking here about the speed of the car but the speed of the damper so low speed would be more like driver inputs uh, pitch roll etc high speed would be undulations of the road maybe running a ripple strip or a curbing or something like that which forces the damper to move at a, at a higher speed in relation to that friction or stiction, does that, would I be right in assuming that that has a bigger relevance on its low speed operation than high speed yeah, definitely. It would be more of a more more of a uh, an influence in the lower speed movements of the damper. And this, I mean, obviously, this is only one element. This way, we sort of see, you know, looking at a mainstream aftermarket coilover setup for an average car, we could buy a lower end brand for maybe somewhere in the range of fifteen hundred to two thousand US dollars. However, if we're starting to look at professional equipment, it would be not unheard of to spend maybe 10 times that amount. So what else are we getting in that higher price point damper and what's that going to actually result in to the driver, maybe ultimately to the lap times or if we're talking rally stage times? Uh, look, to be honest with you, it's an extremely, it's a question I've been asked a fair bit and it's something that we could talk about at length. But essentially, if we just look at the hardware side of things, when you take an entry-level damper and then you take a damper that let's say is five times, 10 times that price, essentially what you are getting is you're getting higher quality seals, you're getting uh, longevity of parts, things like that. So for example, we've we've regassed a damper before that had a worn top seal in it from an entry-level damper. And essentially, just the minute gas force that was required in this particular damper was enough to actually blow it out of the top seal. 
So there is a lot of development that goes into the higher end dampers in extreme conditions to make sure that these things aren't happening, number one. Number two, they're not deteriorating or breaking apart inside the damper to cause it to lose its functionality amongst a, a myriad of others. So I think from a hardware perspective, it's the difference is huge on its own. Sure. I mean, obviously, then we get into adjustability as well. And all of that, understandably, is going to come at a price. We're going to dive back into suspension as we go. Let's just park that for a moment. I want to sort of come back a little bit. From Bilstein, what's your sort of path of progress there in terms of your career? What happened next? So I was at uh, Bilstein for just shy of three years. And uh, essentially from there, I was offered a position at TT Suspension by Dian. So that was an opportunity there for me to further my understanding as far as motorsport suspension development uh, and chassis development is concerned. But also it, it opened up more paths to working at the racetrack as a race engineer, which is you know what I what I was really passionate about at the time. Uh, Bill Stein gave me a few opportunities to do that, but it wasn't their main focus and I can completely understand that. So yeah, it was just a a good career move for me at that point. And as I said, from there, I really started to dive into the more extreme levels of damper development, suspension development, uh, you know, chassis tuning, and uh, it was all motorsport based. Okay. In a broad sense, give us an idea on, on what a race engineer does and uh, what you're in charge of on a race weekend. Uh, race engineer is quite an important role in any race team. I mean, a lot of people think that their main, I guess, role is obviously to look after the setup of the vehicle. So if a driver is complaining about a certain characteristic to you know, make changes to the car to overcome that, that is a massive part of the role. But the other side of things is looking at, obviously, uh, tire pressures, making sure that they're regulated for the conditions, the temperature of the weekend, the fuel strategy, if there is any strategy involved, if it's an endurance race or if you have one set of tires to last a multiple, you know, multiple races, how are you going to u- utilize those tires to get the best performance? The psychological aspect of it, you're managing a lot of different people, different personalities. So you've got mechanics uh, who are all out there to do a, an amazing job. You've got a driver who's got a lot of pressure on them who uh, needs to perform. So managing those people is also a big part of it as well. I can assume that as a race engineer, you're relying heavily on data from whatever the data analysis package fitted to the vehicle is, and I'm guessing that's going to be quite variable depending on the the car, the level of the car, etc. You're also going to be relying on feedback from the driver, and I'm guessing that feedback's going to be of variable quality depending whether you're dealing with a rookie, a gentleman driver, or an absolute professional. So from your perspective, going through that position... What do you rely on most heavily, the data or driver feedback? It really comes down to the, the, like you said, the type of driver that I'm actually dealing with. So in in Carrera Cup, for example, I was working closely with Luke Yulden. Luke Yulden has won the Bathurst 1000 and is quite uh, an experienced driver. So his feedback was paramount in the direction that the car would actually move in. However, when it comes to an amateur, more amateur driver, I would actually get their feedback because yes, it is important. However, I would also rely on the data to make sure that I could verify that feedback. Uh, Depending on the level of driver, there are some guys that still need to grasp the understanding between what is understeer, what is oversteer, but also some drivers are unable to pick up the smaller things like they'll notice the understeer into the corner, but they won't understand that that's the reason they're oversteering on the way out for example. So the data is, is extremely important in all cases, but I would say I rely on it more when I'm dealing with an amateur driver, but I, I will still obviously dive quite deep into it regardless of 
of who I'm dealing with. In particular, along, along those lines, I find that it can be very easy for amateur drivers to note that the car is understeering on corner entry, but not maybe join the dots, that the reason it's understeering is not maybe a chassis imbalance or a setup problem, but the fact that they've come in way too hot into the corner, they've left their braking 20, 30 metres too late, and they're trying to turn the car in while they're still braking too hard, hence they're asking too much from the available grip on the front end of the car. So when you've got that situation and the driver's simply saying to you, hey, it's it's absolute dog shit, it won't turn into the corner, what do you look at in the data to sort of quantify, well, yeah, it's dog shit because you're braking too late. Sort, sort your driving out and the car will turn into the corner. Yeah, so look, really good question. Um, the first thing it comes down to is whether or not I have any reference data from either another person who's driven that car, who's been quite quick. From time to time, I might have the chance to jump into the car myself. I only will do a, a lap or two, but it might be enough for me to get a gauge on what the car is doing and how it's behaving. So first thing I will look at obviously is the brake marker. The second thing that I'll look at from there is other bits and pieces such as the brake pressure versus steering lock. You can have a look at the comparison there and if there is too much of one or not enough of the other, you can uh, usually deduce from that what's happening on the way in, whether it is a driver error or whether they're asking the right amount from the car and it's just not giving it to them. Sure. Okay, and the follow-on question from this, of course, is once you've got to the point where, no, we've actually got an imbalance that we want to work on, we want to try and improve, maybe the car does have a little bit too much push and we want to get a little bit more neutral, obviously this is a big question because it's going to depend very much on the the vehicle that you are working on, but what are the tools available in your tool chest to actually go out and make chassis changes in order to help with maybe reducing understeer, maybe reducing oversteer? So if we take a look at a let's call it uh, an, a more of an entry-level race car. So someone who might drive their car to the racetrack, have a track day and go home. Typically, that car will have a set of coilovers. It may have uh, sway bars. So with those two things alone, if we take damper adjustments out of it, we can look at ride height adjustment. We can look at bump and rebound or, or droop travel. Aside from that, we can also look at the sway bar settings that are currently in the car and make adjustments to those to help move the balance either forward or backwards however it's needed. For me, one of the really nice tuning tools that is pretty well priced and easy to make adjustments at the track would be a set of adjustable sway bars or anti-roll bars. Um, We used white line anti-roll bars which are a pretty popular Australian brand on two of our Toyota 86s before we went to an in-cabin adjustable ARB uh, more recently but you've got maybe three positions of adjustment front and rear so that actually gives you quite a, a big window in order to change the balance. Can you give us some broad sort of tuning tips on if we're got an understeer situation what change would you make and what magnitude of change so the that answer is is very car dependent but let's take let's take a car that has like your 86 a mcpherson strut front end and a trailing arm uh, rear end so if i was to let's say soften the front arb one hole that would uh, obviously give the front a little bit more breathing room the other side of it is we need to understand is the front understeering because it doesn't have enough grip on that axle or is it understeering because the rear has too much grip on its axle? So obviously, as you go into the corner, the rear will gain a fair bit of camber in comparison to the front. So that's something that we need to have a look at. So the other side of the coin is we could stiffen the rear ARB um, or, or sway bar 
in order to eliminate some of that roll, eliminate some of the camber gain that's uh, experienced on that axle and allow the car to want to lift the inside wheel to help rotation through, you know, entry to the mid mid phase of that corner. Sure. So obviously it, it is a broad topic and I don't want to try and oversimplify it, but generally if we did have that situation with adjustable sway bars on the front and the rear, if you've got understeer, you could either soften the front or you could stiffen the rear and that would have the effect generally of reducing the understeer and moving more towards a a neutral balance. Conversely, if you've got too much oversteer, again, assuming we're not talking driver-induced here, by softening the rear bar or stiffening the front, that would generally tend to, to move us away from oversteer more towards neutral. Yeah, that's correct. And as far as the magnitude of the change that I would make, I mean, to be honest, uh, if you're at a track day with a fair few practice sessions, you know, a fair few test sessions, I should say, then, you know, you would make one change to the rear, send the car back out again. If you have 20 minute, half an hour sessions, you know, feel free to use the first two, three flying laps as a test of that change, bring the car back in, make another change. So magnitude wise, it really comes down to how much time you have up your sleeve. But Typical track day guy, I would make a, make a small change, let's say one hole of stiffness in the rear ARB to help reduce some of that understeer and get some feedback from the driver or, or take a look at the data. A couple of things I just wanted to bring in that you're talking about there from my own experience. I mean, I'm an amateur driver at best. I do have the benefit of getting on the track pretty regularly, but I'm absolutely no pro. And what I really like to do is feel the effect of those changes and your 20 minute session that you just mentioned is a really nice way of being able to directly feel that change and what I like to do is go out with a baseline set up, do a couple of warm up laps, get in one or two flying laps and really sort of focus on how the car's feeling, what it's doing, how it's riding bumps, how it brakes, how it turns in, corner exit, how the balance is and I'm focusing on that in my mind and then I'll come back in and we'll make one change. And the benefit of doing that in a session is that I can straight away get back out on the track and I've still got that fresh in my mind, what was the car doing before we made this change, what's it doing after that change. Conversely, if you do a full 20 minute session, then you make the change and you're not back out on the track for an hour as an amateur, unless the change is quite dramatic, you might struggle to really kind of compare it to that baseline and get a sense for it. So I think that's a really good option if you've got the potential. I mean, obviously, if the change you want to make is going to take 15 minutes, well, that's not going to work. But anti-roll bar changes, usually you can make one of those in probably under five minutes pretty easily. The other element that that I think I've fallen into this trap as well, I just want to mention, is a reluctance to make changes. And I did this for the longest time with with our 8.6 uh, with the aero package on it and you know, it's undertired for the power it's got and that's because we're stuck with the, the stock body lines and that is what it is. So it does suffer from corner exit oversteer and particularly under out of lower speed corners and that's to be expected. However, finally we actually went through some iterations of rear wing changes and we ended up making quite a significant change over three steps and each time the car just got better and better but I'd run that car as it was and just sort of driven around its inherent handling balance for probably a full season of racing. And after that, I was just kicking myself. I think it's really important when you've got that adjustability, do a test day and actually go through the different steps and get a sense of, of what that's giving. Try and find the operating window to get into and absolutely write some notes so you can refer to them at a later point. Does that match your experience? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's definitely a pitfall that uh, is experienced by a lot of entry-level guys. Uh, as far as the reluctance to make changes is concerned, it's an easy mistake to make. At the end of the day, if you have a test day, if you're not competing professionally, there's no real reason to not try something. And let's say that's you've made a change and it's not a step in the right direction. You've learned what not to do or you've learned what your car doesn't like. So there's always two sides of that coin. Yeah. I mean, that's sometimes just as important as finding a direction which, which improves things. And I think just looking at my own perspective on it, I think that was maybe driving a reluctance to make some wholesale changes to the likes of the Aero. I had a car that was pretty good. It was a pretty good thing. Yes, it had some limitations and some of those were expected. So my hesitation was really around, well, I can make this change and make the whole thing worse. But I kind of was missing the the flip side of that coin is like, well, yeah, but it could also make it better. And that's exactly what it did. So yeah, I think, yeah, don't be afraid to make those changes would be sort of key. Right, let's come back to your, your sort of career trajectory. At what point did you sort of decide that maybe doing this for yourself was was what you wanted to do? It, was, uh, it wasn't an easy decision, I'll, I'll be honest. And I have to say that, that there was a gentleman that I was working with at the time at, at TTS. His name is Andrew, currently works with me. And Andrew, he and I were both noticed that, uh, you know, Dion was looking to move on to do other things. It was something that we'd all spoken about quite openly. So it was a matter of a few of us were kind of looking at each other going, okay, what's next? And when I floated the idea, it was almost as a joke. And Andrew turned around and said, you know, hey, mate, if if you are looking to seriously do that, I'd be happy to come on board. And the confidence that he had in the idea and the confidence that he had uh, in me as well played a role there. And it got the ball rolling. January, I sat down with a pad and a pen. And in April, we, we, uh, we moved into the factory. Okay. It's a big step, particularly difficult Going from a position where you're working for someone else, so you've got that sort of guaranteed paycheck, the confidence in, in the direction you're going. I mean, clearly you, you're sort of seeing maybe some direction change in the business, so that might have been a driver there. But always difficult to take that leap of faith. Did you have a fallback plan if things didn't go as well as they clearly have? Uh, look, to be perfectly honest with you, not really. Um, and it was something that I thought, you know, if it all implodes, I'll figure it out there and then. But no, for me, it was a full commitment to the idea. So I'm a firm believer that if you're going to try anything, you know, sit down, do the homework, do the research. And if you believe in the idea, you, you need to follow through with it 100%. You need to give it everything. Otherwise, there are opportunities that will be missed or there are, you know, chances for success that you'll uh, relinquish. So the sort of uh, burn the boats once you get to shore approach and 100% commitment, no no way out. That's correct. Yeah, 100%. I was, I was going to set fire to every one of those boats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an extreme. I mean, obviously at this point, you've got an engineering degree behind you. You've got industry experience. So there's always going to be fallback plans if the worst happens. So I think you, you're probably set up in a, in a reasonably good position if it hadn't worked out for you. In terms of, I like to dive a little bit into the business aspect because we do have uh, other shop owners that listen to this podcast or those thinking about starting some kind of business in the automotive sense. We don't sort of get too too personal into this, but uh, in terms of funding it, did you sort of bootstrap this thing and sort of build it up as you got income from customers or was there a big cash injection that you needed to actually sort of get the business operating in the first place? 
I mean, of course, with any uh, almost any business, there will need to be some form of cash injection at the start. But as far as the design of the business or the, the facilities that were available to us are concerned, uh, it was definitely funded by the initial opening of the business once we started to build a reputation, gain a little bit of success. Basically, and, and almost still to this day, all forms of uh, income have been re-injected into the business in order to improve on certain areas, expand into other areas and whatnot. Okay. All right, let's get a, a bit of a 30,000-foot view of what DNA Autosport is. So for a start, at this point, how long have you been operating and, and whereabouts are you based? So we've been operating, we're coming to the end of our third year. Yeah, okay, so it's still pretty fresh. Yeah, still pretty fresh. So May will be the beginning of our fourth year uh, as a business. We're based in Wetherill Park uh, in Sydney, New South Wales. So about five call it five to 10 minute drive to Eastern Creek or Sydney Motorsport Park. Right. Okay, cool. And size of the facility, number of staff? The workshop floor itself is currently 580 square meters. As far as the staff is concerned, myself included, there is six of us. Okay, cool. And most importantly, what are the services you're, you're offering to the public at the moment? So being a, uh, you know, being a licensed workshop, aside from general maintenance, servicing of vehicles and, and things like that, I would say the main point of call for us is uh, suspension development, chassis tuning. So we will offer anything from a basic wheel alignment for a road car all the way up to, let's say, a full 3D measure up of a time attack car or chassis car and, and everything in between. So, you know, corner scaling uh, or corner balancing and again you know more in-depth alignments or more in-depth chassis tuning in terms of the split with the business could you sort of give us a an idea percentage wise maybe of of what sort of you're doing in the motorsport realm be that race car preparation alignment suspension versus sort of general maintenance work on road cars uh, as far as the general maintenance on road cars is concerned, that's really a small facet of the business. I would say it's probably 5 to 10% of, of what we do. And a lot of the time, it's you know cars of, let's say, the, the wife of a good customer who just wants to have their road car serviced and they have a trust in us, so we do that for them. But the, the bulk of our work, yes, is uh, performance-based. So whether it's performance road cars like you know Porsches, BMWs, uh, Nissans, Mitsubishis, things like that, all the way up to GT4, GT3 spec uh, vehicles that we we look after. Now, that was going to be my next question. You know, what brands are you focused on? Does that sort of cover it, those brands that you just mentioned? Or is it a case of if it's got wheels and the customer wants you to work on it, you're going to get involved? Yeah, that's correct. It, typically, if it has a damper in a spring, or even sometimes if it just has a damper, we'll, uh, we'll get involved. So yeah, the brand is not really a massive focus for us. It's more so the chassis and suspension side of of the automotive industry that we look we like to look after. Okay, cool. I'm interested to dive a bit deeper into track days and track day preparation because this is a, a big part of your business. And and here I want to sort of bring it back to more the amateur side of things because I think that probably covers the broader range of our listeners. I know it can be pretty daunting for guys or girls out there who you know, have a modified street car and have sort of been thinking, hey, you know what, I wouldn't mind uh, cutting some laps at my local track and, and seeing how it performs in the safety of a controlled environment no uh, pedestrians, no cars coming the other way. For a start, and I mean, this is going to be country dependent, I can only imagine, but in Australia, what what are the steps involved in someone who's got a, a road car and a driver's license for the road getting involved in a track day? 
there are plenty of companies out there that will hire a particular track out for the day and then offer just a small ticket fee in order for you to attend the day. So for example, at Eastern Creek is a company called Driving Solutions. Jumping on their website would give you a full calendar of their days. Conversely, uh, at uh, Wakefield Park, Raceway, there's John Boston who runs Track School. And Track School is a great example of a company who hires the track out for the day, provides facilities and amenities for their entrance, you know, provides uh, professional drivers to give you a hand and other bits and pieces to make life really easy for the entry level driver. Okay. In terms of, is there any requirement for motorsport or a racing license to get involved at the level you've just mentioned? At that level, no. It's quite literally uh, an Australian road license, which I don't actually believe is a prerequisite, but provided that you can prove it, you can drive a car, I think that's more than enough. Sure. Okay. Now, in terms of things that we should be looking at, considering or changing on our road car, modified or, or otherwise, when it goes to the track, what would you sort of list as your key elements that should be focused on? As far as changes being made to a car, especially a car that, you know, let's say you've never been to a track day before, the first thing that I would really be looking at is your tyres. So there are plenty of road cars or road tyres out there that are more than capable of seeing a bit of track work, especially if it's only 10 to 15 minutes at a time. So step one would be obviously looking at those tyres, making sure you've got a tyre pressure gauge with you or access to one to make sure uh, that those pressures are regulated. But aside from that, a quick bit of research will show a lot of road spec tires that are actually quite capable on a, on a track. Uh, you mentioned tire pressure. I think this is kind of one of the more important tuning tools that's also essentially free that we have at our disposal when we're at a track day. For the average road car, we probably set our tire pressures and, and then never look at them for the next six or 12 months. Maybe some people are a little bit more involved with that, but yeah, that would be the usual until we visually see that the tires may be looking a little bit flat. We don't worry about it too much. And the sort of pressures that we see on the road uh, can be quite different to what we want on the track. A big element of it is, unless you're pushing very hard on the road, which is going to be hard to do if you value your license, you're not going to be building up the heat in the tyre that you're going to develop on the racetrack, and that heat corresponds to the tyre pressure growing. So with that all being said, could you give us some guides? I mean, again, this is going to be very dependent on the tyre and, and the vehicle itself, but some guides into what sort of hot running pressures we should be aiming for on the track? It is, uh, it's quite a broad question, to be honest with you, and it is difficult to answer. Um, but if you had, let's say, a road tire, the road tire or the tires that came with that particular car, on the inside door trim, it will usually give you, you know, a road pressure to run to. So if you aimed for that pressure within, let's say, uh, you know, a 2 PSI window, if you aim for that pressure hot, I think that would be a good target for the guys who are on the tires that the car came with from factory. And then from there, if uh, for those who uh, you know do that little bit of research and really find themselves on a sticky bit of rubber, typically a nice hot operating window would be thirty to thirty-four psi. Again, given the alignment, given the weight of the car, all sorts of different factors. But I think that's a safe window. Yeah, there's not a lot of black and white uh, in terms of motorsport. There's just sort of some guidelines, which is all I'm trying to get out of this. But the more important thing is. 
for our road car, like I just mentioned, we kind of set our pressures and, and forget about them. With the track day use, it's typical to be looking at tyre pressures before and after every session. And the bit that's easy to overlook if you're coming from just driving on the road is the amount of pressure gain can be really, really quite an eye-opener. And if you went to the track with your cold temperatures set just as you drive up to the track at let's say 32 PSI and then go out into a 15 minute session, I mean I wouldn't be surprised if you came back in and those tyres were at sort of 38 or, or maybe 40 PSI. So what is the process we should be going through? Do you have some guides on you know, maybe how much pressure we want to drop out of the tyres before the first session or is that dangerous should we just look at what they come back in hot after the first session and bleed them down? Uh, I think you're, you're spot on there. It's you know pretty eye-opening number once you see how much that those tyres can actually expand. So looking at a track, so first thing to note would be which direction does that track go in? Is there more left-hand corners or right-hand corners? From there, if you, uh, you know, look at a window of, let's say, 6 to 8 PSI of tyre pressure growth, I would be looking at that hot target that you're after. On the loaded side of the car, you can assume that it's going to grow 7 to 8 PSI. On the unloaded side of the car, maybe 6 to 7 PSI. So taking your hot target that you want on all four wheels, minusing those numbers, uh, and then starting there. If you're not sure, I always recommend to go a few PSI higher because if a tire is damaged, usually the damage occurs when the tire is cold, not when the tire is hot and malleable. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is also my own little tip is it's obviously always easier to remove pressure than it is to add it. So it, it makes sense to start high and, and work towards your target. But the other one that, that we've actually only recently purchased, and it's an absolute game changer, just a, a Milwaukee little uh, battery powered compressor. It's a tiny little thing. It wasn't a huge amount of money and it just gives you that confidence. You can rock up to the track with that and if you find your tyre pressure is still maybe a couple of PSI lower than you want, well it's easy to go and add pressure whereas conventionally that's not that easy to do at a lot of racetracks. It's not normally a compressor facility to add that pressure. In terms of adjusting the balance, I mean, again, this this could end up being a, a really deep rabbit hole, but just as a tuning tool, tyre pressures, I mean, obviously what we're trying to do here is sort of maximise the tyre contact patch at, at each corner of the car, and I mean, if you think of a balloon, that's really how the tyre is, so if we overinflate the tyre, it's going to, to bulge, and we're primarily going to be running on the centre, if we underinflate it, the opposite's true, and we kind of end up running more on the edges, in either instance, we're not maximising that tyre contact patch. But, I mean, all things being equal, if we've got the tyre contact patch working how it should and we've still got a car that, let's say, exhibits understeer or oversteer, in your opinion, is tyre pressure within a, a reasonable range a, a useful tuning tool to make adjustments to that balance? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that is something that uh, the amateur can definitely look into. Minor changes to hot tyre pressure is something that you can use to move the balance forward or, or rearward. Right, we've dealt with our tyres, our tyre pressures, and I think that's an absolute key. Are there any other elements that uh, you would consider absolutely essential before rocking out to your first track day? If you've never done a track day before, I think it's important to think about the equipment that you take to the track. So obviously a tyre pressure gauge is great, you know, uh, something to ensure that your wheel nuts are actually torqued up and uh, tight from a safety perspective is extremely important. But aside from that, a quick visit to, let's say, DNA Autosport uh, would be a great uh, would be a great idea just to have the car inspected because typically if the car has any problem, if you add speed or weight to that problem, the problem will get worse. So if you have a bush that's failing 
and you go and start to put that through some of the uh, conditions it will see on track, you could uh, very quickly find yourself uh, in a in a hairy situation. Yeah, definitely making sure that the car's mechanically sound, I think it should go without saying, but unfortunately it isn't always that case. And not only that as well, I think making sure that your engine is mechanically healthy as well. I mean, I, I used to get this all the time when I was dyno tuning and, and people would bring you a car and you'd watch them unload it off the trailer and just by the way the engine cranked to start up and the way it idles, you just knew that the thing was just about on its deathbed anyway. So taking on the racetrack or putting on a dyno is is not going to help if the engine is already not in the best shape. So fluid checks, maybe spark plugs, just making sure everything is in tip-top condition, those would be sensible places to get started. Of course, again, you know, if you have a, a professional that you trust or, or someone that looks after a particular part of your car, giving them a quick visit for a health check is always a, um, a sure way to keep yourself safe. Yeah, yeah. Then there's other elements as well, which might be specific to the track day you're attending, but uh, it would be common to require in some instances a uh, fire extinguisher to be fitted to the car, protective equipment for the driver as well. I won't dwell on that too much. I mean, that that all makes sense. And I don't think when it comes to safety equipment, you, you can't be too careful there. You want really the best that you can afford. Now, once someone's uh, sort of hooked on that track day experience and, and starts wanting to develop their car to, to do a better job, this is an area where there's a lot of misinformation and I can see a lot of people, I would say, maybe wasting money needlessly on areas of their car that aren't necessarily going to immediately develop into better lap times. On that front, with what you see, what would you list as the areas people maybe needlessly spend money i completely agree with you you know doing research and ending up on a forum can be a very a very deep rabbit hole essentially people will start to to, when they look at uh, their car and looking at improving their car the first thing that they'll think of might be going to a set of coilovers improving the sway bars changing out bushings things like that but the car's never had a wheel alignment in its life so there are plenty of places to spend money as far as improving your car however i think the steps or or the order in which that money is spent really needs to be looked at for a lot of people so well give us the uh, dna autosport recipe someone comes to you with their car and wants to improve their lap times what's the advice you're going to give them what is the process you'll go through a lot of this is obviously going to depend on the specifics of the car but let's try and keep it a bit more generic Of course, the first thing that we would do is obviously just have a look at the car and wheel line it. So make sure that the foundation is uh, secured. You know, you can build the most beautiful house on the planet, but if you build it on sand, it'll fall over. So we want to make sure that uh, all the wheels are facing in the right direction. Give the alignment a little bit of aggression to offer that car some support on track. From there, the car can come back. And if, uh, you know, based on the success, we will then look at other ways to improve the alignment so if you know subarus for example some wrx's don't have any camber adjustment in the rear let's change one of the control arms there give the car a little bit of support uh, in the rear or take some away if the front is overburdened so that's definitely step one and and from there it, it really boils down to the commitment of the the client and how far they want to go 
I just want to take a moment out of our interview with Andre to talk about a course that I think you'll really enjoy if you're enjoying this interview and that is our motorsport wheel alignment course. As a special bonus you can use the coupon code DNA Autosport 50 we'll put a link to that coupon code in the show notes that'll get you 50% off the purchase of that motorsport wheel alignment course and while most people would think that if you need to get your wheel alignment done you have to take Take it to an alignment professional, nothing could be further from the truth. This is simply not practical at the racetrack. You can't take a four-wheel alignment set up along to the racetrack. Instead, what you can do though is use a string alignment system and you're thinking to yourself right now, that sounds pretty backyardish. Surely strings aren't the way of aligning your car. Well, you might be surprised to know that this is actually the way that all professional motorsport teams deal with suspension alignment or wheel alignment at the track, right up to and including the likes of Formula One. So it is absolutely 100% tried and proven. And the best part is, it's not going to break the bank to do so. Now, this course starts with understanding the fundamentals of wheel alignment. You'll learn about different suspension styles, suspension geometry, and how making changes to your alignment will affect the way the car handles and performs on the racetrack. This will allow you to make adjustments to your alignment to help improve the balance and the way the car performs. From here, there's a step-by-step process that you can apply to aligning your own car. By following this process from start to finish it's going to ensure that you get the best possible results in the minimal amount of time and most importantly make sure that your car is aligned properly and safe to drive. We also include a library of worked examples inside of this course so you can see that process being applied from start to finish on a real world alignment job. Again we'll put a link to the course as well as that coupon code in the show notes. Let's get back to our chat with Andre now. I want to talk a little bit about alignment in more detail but before we get to that my perspective of running a tuning workshop a little bit different to yours because we had people always coming to us looking to make more power and that that's kind of understandable and when we look at it if the car has 200 horsepower and does x lap time well surely giving it 250 horsepower is going to reduce that lap time and I mean most often yes it will. I'm interested from your perspective in terms of areas to spend money on in the car is increasing engine performance a smart way of reducing your lap times? Look, again, it really comes down to the track as well. So, you know, increasing your engine power at a place like Wakefield Park will slowly reduce your lap time, but increasing that car's capability to brake and corner will very quickly reduce your lap time. So uh, I don't know if I would use the word in saying, is it a smart way? Because it's definitely not a bad way to do it. However, you need to look at the track as a whole. You need to look at that vehicle as a whole. Yeah, I think that's valid. I mean, again, it sort of comes back to there's not a lot of black and white here. What I would say, the sort of the angle I, I had with that question is quite often I saw people with a car that they hadn't put the time and the money into sorting out the suspension, the alignment, the braking performance. You've got kind of a, a car that's average at best down to, to maybe, maybe just outright evil in its handling. And when you take a car like that and you add 50 horsepower, all it tends to do is sort of exaggerate all of the bad elements that you've already got. Obviously, you're going to be going faster into the braking points. And if your brakes are already marginal, well, that's not going to end that well. My stance has always been get those fundamentals worked on first. And I mean, suspension and alignment 
maybe a set of brake pads, maybe an upgraded brake package isn't necessarily a sexy and exciting way of modifying your car. But generally, I think the smartest first steps as opposed to just jumping in and chucking a whole bunch more power at it. That's kind of the angle I was going with. Does that make sense to you as well? Uh, of course, you're 100% right. It's, this isn't a very black and white subject, so apologies for misunderstanding. But yes, looking at the engine performance solely, I don't think is a smart way to do things at all as far as trying to reduce lap times. As I said before, if you have a problem and you add weight or speed to that problem, the problem's going to get worse or exaggerated. So no, not a smart way to do it at all. The flip side of this is another area that I see a lot of people kind of not put as much focus on as I think they should. You've got, obviously, cars are expensive and track time is expensive. And then on top of that, when you take your car to the track, the knock-on effect is you're going to be burning through consumables. And by that, I'm talking about fuel, tyres, brake pads at a much quicker rate than you normally would. So there's a cost involved in this. And what I see a lot of my old customers would do is spend... 90% of their budget on modifications to the car and even these might be well-rounded modifications all the things we're just talking about suspension alignment brakes and some power which all makes sense but they would neglect spending the money on actually getting track time and you know maybe they're doing one or, or maybe at the most two track days a year in terms of instead maybe reassigning some of that budget towards just getting out on the track maybe once every month or every couple of months is that going to do better things for your ability as a driver and your performance on track uh, yeah 100% we could engineer a car to within an inch of its life but it's, it really is up to the driver to extract the performance uh, from that setup so yeah 100% agree the more seat time that you can get the better the more you can learn to work with your car the better and that also gives us a great foundation to work with I think the other thing there that comes into this is maybe driver coaching or data analysis so we'll jump into that because for a lot of people that have had zero experience on the racetrack and maybe they're just used to driving their car at road car speeds it can actually be a real eye-opener just how much unlocked potential that car has on the track and it can be really clear when you sort of go out for a couple of sessions in your car for the first time and maybe you put in a, a one minute 45 lap and you're feeling pretty good about yourself and maybe you passed a couple of your mates while you're out there And you sort of feel like, you know, Ed and Senna and and that's all good. And then you actually get a professional, maybe a driver coach to jump in your car and go and do some laps. And all of a sudden you find that they just cut 20 seconds off your lap time and maybe you don't feel so good about yourself. But um, for me, if that happens, I always see that as as a good thing because straight away they've shown you the potential that the car has. And it's just now a job of you to extract that. So the importance or usefulness of driver coaching and or data analysis, what's your take on that? For a new driver, it's extremely easy to take on bad habits. At the end of the day, the more you do something, you, you can practice something as much as, as you want, but if you practice it wrong, you're going to learn it wrong. So going to a day like that that you know track school will put on, they'll have a driver coach there that could sit in the passenger seat with you and actually coach you through a lap or have a look at the habits that you're starting to form and try to break those before they become a problem. Do you also rely on any data analysis packages? And I mean, there's levels to this as well. I mean, at the professional level, you you see a GT3 race car that's got a a dash logger that's several thousand dollars and generating hundreds of channels of data that you need to 
really understand what you're looking at in order to analyze. But at the lower end, I mean, one of the products we've used in some of our driving courses and our data analysis courses, the likes of the AIM Solo 2 DL, which is... I think maybe three or four hundred US dollars. It's it's portable. You can suction cup it to your windscreen. And I mean, yes, it's not going to give you a hundred channels of data, but particularly when you're just getting started, less is absolutely more, in my opinion. You know, do you recommend this? How useful is it? How should it be used? I definitely recommend any form of of data analysis, and and the word data is actually quite broad. So never underestimate the effects of a GoPro. You know, so some guys can go buy a small camera and, and attach that to the car, and just having that footage there is more than enough to really hone in on some bad habits. And again, you know, try to break those before they actually become an issue. So, I definitely recommend any form of data analysis. And yeah, those new systems uh, that people are using are awesome. The little Garmin systems and things like that is a great uh, addition to any track day. Yeah, absolutely. You can learn so much for a very modest outlay. In terms of the the GoPro footage, another element that I always use when I'm driving at a track that I'm perhaps not super familiar with or maybe going to for the very first time, jump on YouTube and search up some in-car footage from that particular track. Ideally, if you can find GoPro footage or track footage from a similar style of car uh, to your own that's obviously going to be beneficial but it's going to give you a, a bit more muscle memory about the direction the track goes you know braking points turning points apexes etc and you know a bit of a flow for the track I think you can really learn a, a lot and fast track how quickly you'll get up to speed on your first laps by just spending maybe an hour or so going over some other people's footage Let's move more into the suspension element here. So previously you, you talked about alignment and I mean again this is this is a very very broad topic but uh, when you're setting a car up for the racetrack what are you sort of leaning on in terms of some good base alignment settings? Does it come from experience? I mean you can't approach every car with the same alignment settings and expect results, correct? Yeah, 100%. A lot of it is based on experience. It's based on understanding uh, what works and what doesn't. The other side of it is if there is a particular car that I may never have seen before, worked with before, the other thing that we lean on is a core understanding of the different geometries that are available in in, uh, different chassis. Okay, so just expand on that a little bit. How does that affect the decisions you'll make in terms of alignment based on the geometry of the specific car? For sure. So a standard geometry that a lot of people are well aware of would be that of a McPherson strut. So a McPherson strut will display different uh, symptoms, you know, in compression and droop travel that of a trailing arm would. So, you know, having a look at, okay, this is a McPherson strut, the camber can be adjusted from the ears as well as the top mount. Where is the steering arm mounted? Is it in front of the coilover? Is it behind the coilover? So all of these little bits and pieces give us clues as to, okay, what alignment is going to work in this car. So, I mean, breaking that down into something we can relate to there, the camber curve, which is simply the camber change relative to the suspension movement into bump or rebound for a McPherson strut is going to be potentially quite different to a double A-arm style suspension where the double wishbone suspension for a, a race application can be engineered with camber gain so the more the suspension compresses the more negative camber we get knock on effect of this is statically when we're aligning the car we may be able to get away with less negative camber on the double arm than the McPherson strut is that sort of the direction you're going there with different geometries? 
Yeah, exactly, exactly, hundred percent. So everything, uh, everything works differently. Everything has its idiosyncrasies. So we will take that. We'll look at other things such as the weight of the car. You know, what's adjustable, things like that, and essentially try to tailor a package based on uh, on those uh, those clues. Let's call it. So that covers the car. Does this also depend on on the track? I mean, would you set up a car differently for? Let's say a track that's predominantly clockwise versus one that's anti-clockwise, how would that vary for a track that is predominantly high speed with maybe not a lot of uh, hairpin or low speed corners versus the complete opposite of that? Yeah, give, give us some ideas on that. So let's take the effects of aerodynamics out of the equation, um, looking at a car that has no aero influence. Effectively, if you're looking at a, a low speed track like Wakefield Park versus a higher speed track like Sydney Motorsport Park, the alignment perspective may not change too much. The main changes that I personally would make would be chassis-related changes, such as the ride height, the sway bar settings, things like that. Each of those tracks requires something different from the car. So Easton Creek requires something that's stable in higher speed conditions, whereas Wakefield Park, we need to take typically heavy cars and have them rotate at slow speeds you know, in, in quite a short space of time. So in order to make that happen, uh, yes, maybe minor changes to the alignment might be warranted, but typically for me, I will look at the chassis. Okay, so just for that specific situation you mentioned with Wakefield Park getting a, a big heavy car to rotate into a slow speed corner, what would you change if you'd come from a setup that was for a high speed track where stability was your, your key criteria? Uh, look, a, a typical change, something that might work, you know, for a lot of different production cars would be simply raising the rear ride height, for example, to allow the back of the car to rotate a little bit nicer and the entry to mid phases of those corners. A lot of these corners are low speed corners, so a little bit of extra rotation won't necessarily put the driver in a fluster. In terms of validating that alignment, whatever it may be that you've set up from previous experience with similar cars and you you go to the actual track, what are you then using to validate, did we get it right, do we need to make changes? And I'm talking here more about the alignment, do we need more or less camber, do we want to make a toe change, what what are you using there at the track to, to help guide you? If I'm at the track, the main thing that I'll rely on is a visual inspection of the tyre itself, see how it is wearing. The other side of it is uh, the temperature. So if uh, if I have a temperature probe, a little, little pin that I can poke into, you know, the inside, the middle and the outside of that tyre, having a look at those temperatures, what side of the car they're on, as well as the split between them. So how hot is the outside in comparison to the inside? And how does that compare to the center of the tire? That really gives me the bulk of the information that I need to know to say, yes, this alignment is working or no, we need a little bit more of this or that. So that, that temperature gradient across the tire I and mean, the, the sort of idea behind this is if we've got the entire width of the tire contact patch evenly contacting the track and being worked hard, then the temperature is going to be relatively even between those three points. If we've got too much negative camber, we're primarily going to be running on the inside edge, hence that'll get hotter. Not enough camber, obviously the opposite's the case. And then we can also see what the tyre pressures are like by looking at the centre temperature relative to the inside and outside. The problem with this is we don't get the benefit of actually seeing that temperature as the car comes off the corner. 
because it's a measurement that we are taking back in the pit. So the car has to transit pit lane. There might be maybe a, a long straight between the last corner and the entry to the pit. So that gives time for those temperatures to kind of equalise somewhat. Have you got a guide that you can share with us for sort of what you consider to be an ideal temperature gradient from inside to outside? Or again, is it not quite that straightforward? Look, you're 100% right. You need to be very mindful of when you're taking these temperatures and you need to think about those factors. If you're at a garage at pit exit and your car has come from pit entry, that's a long way to go to allow those tyre temperatures to, to cool. So for me, the first thing that I'd be doing is obviously meeting the car at pit entry. So as soon as it comes into the pits, I want to be on the loaded side of the car. As far as the temperature gradient is concerned, it really does come down to the type of tire that you're running. And a lot of manufacturers, if you ask for a specification sheet, will give you an indication of what they'd like to see. So a slick tire might be something uh, you know up around 20 degrees split between the inside to the outside, whereas you might find something a little bit less for the street tires. Okay, yeah. I mean, I've always sort of tried to start with the slick tyres we run with about a 15 degree split. So what I mean by that, just to be really clear, is the inside edge is going to measure hotter than the outside edge. And I try and keep that pretty even. The reason being, as we've just said, your car comes off the corner, it's going to transition at least some length of straight, then it's going to come into the pit entry. The whole time it's doing that, the outside edge of the tyre is no longer loaded. So clearly that is going to end up cooling down relative to the inside edge, which is still rolling on the track. So I always sort of try for about a 15 degree split as a starting point and then because there's not a lot a lot of black and white here you can try seeing what a 12 degree or maybe an 18 degree split does and sort of start to get a sense of what direction your particular car and, and that particular tyre wants to go in. All right, so in terms of the suspension itself, we'll come back full circle. We've already started talking about suspension, but at DNA Autosport, you are using the Tractive brand, which is a brand that we don't hear about too often in the Southern Hemisphere. Give us a little bit more information about what it is, where it comes from, and and why you've chosen to go that route. So the Tractive suspension brand, they're currently uh, the world leader in electronic damping. So with a lot of factory cars coming out with electronic dampers, uh, BMWs, Porsches, et cetera, it's extremely important to stay relevant and it's extremely important to partner yourself with someone who is at the spearhead of a lot of these new changes. So Tractive are actually an OEM provider for companies like Pagani. So they do link themselves with some some very, uh, you know, some heavy hitters in the automotive industry. And essentially what makes them different is they have what they call the DDA valve, And essentially, this valve is patented, and it is currently the world's fastest moving electronic valve. So full hard to full soft can be changed in 6 to 10 milliseconds. So if you think about the fact that the human brain can only react to something in about 100 to 150 milliseconds, you get a pretty good appreciation for how quickly the damping can adjust itself out there on the circuit. All right, so this electronic suspension that we're seeing in these later model OEs, this is the ability for, they'll have a electronic brain computer control box and that's able to adjust the dampening on the fly. That's what the OEs are doing? That's correct, yes. Now, is this just as simple as sport mode, comfort mode, track mode, or are they actually making subtle changes as the car negotiates a corner and and starts to brake and then turn into the corner? So 
all manufacturers uh, and the control systems that they use obviously vary. However, yes, that's the general gist of it. So if a car is heavy on the brakes, the G-force signature of that car will show a massive force to the front. And essentially, the dampers will receive that message and make changes accordingly. All right. So I'm guessing then that if you're dealing with one of these late model vehicles that has factory electronically adjustable suspension, you're going to cause some problems with DTCs and maybe the performance of the car is going to be limited if you actually just went and fitted a middle of the road brand of coilover suspension that wasn't electronically adjustable. Uh, yeah, that's correct. So you typically the suspension is always tied in with a lot of these safety features and traction systems and things like that. So just removing those on their own can have uh, small knock-on effects. Okay. So Tractif will work with the OE control strategy. So we get away from the potential for these diagnostic trouble codes coming up. I can only imagine, however, that the calibration of that factory control box may be is now no longer ideal given that you've got a completely different damper, almost certainly a different spring rate, probably a different ride height as well. So how does that all work? So Tractive offer plug and play kits where they've had a look at the standard algorithms that say in the control unit that's in the car. And then uh, essentially you just plug their damper directly in and it will still receive the same messages from the car and relay those slightly differently to achieve a certain valving curve or, or whatnot. So a lot of this has been calculated for. However, in other cars, we have the opportunity to actually remove the standard control unit, replace it with another one called a DSC Sport controller. And essentially that allows us to tune each corner of the car individually and tune each mode to our liking. Okay. That sounds like it opens up a, a whole massive potential can of worms there in terms of I can imagine that's going to give you so much control that if you don't know what you're doing, you could end up so far out of the ballpark that you can't sort of see your way back. So what's the process of setting up one of these DSC controllers and ensuring that you're actually getting an improvement in performance rather than potentially going backwards? So with all the controllers that we offer, they actually come out of the box with an algorithm that's been either designed by DSC Sport and modified slash tweaked by us for our conditions and our tracks, or if for, for the sake of the track guys, has something has been, an algorithm has been developed by us with a pro driver, for example, you know, car leaves the pits, make a change, come back in, tweak it, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the time, the end user doesn't actually have to touch it. However, if they want to, for example, make a change to the comfort mode because the car might be, you know, too wallowy or not or, or too stiff in comfort mode, it's all tunable over TeamViewer. So it's it's quite an easy thing to for us to do with the client. In terms of the actual effect on performance, and I mean, this is obviously a very difficult question to answer, but in comparison to a conventional damper that might be two-way adjustable but mechanically adjustable, you physically have to come back into the pits to adjust the bump and rebound dampening versus something like this electronically controlled damper with a valve that can adjust full hard to full soft in 6 to 10 milliseconds. What is going to be the effect on performance, the effect on lap time, the effect on driver feel? Again, I understand that difficult to give real specifics, but if you can even just give us some broad guidelines, you know, are we talking maybe a few percent improvement in lap time? How's it all work out? 
So, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting question. So let's take it piece by piece. As far as the electronic damper system is concerned, you're no longer tuning with a clicker where you just go, okay, three clicks from full hard. This is now the valving curve. Instead, you're actually tuning the range that the controller is allowed to work within. So if we can picture it as, you know, a damper has one to 10 settings, 10 being full hard. When the car goes into sport mode, the controller will say, you're allowed to go up to eight, which doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's going to live at eight. It just means it will allow itself to get that firm if the car continues to build G-force. So from a lap time perspective, typically we find with the, the Porsche platform, which is a, a big seller for us, with the Porsche platform, we typically find a good second to a second and a half with the DSC controller when, we, when the car is driven by a, a fairly well-equipped driver. That's what we've been able to find, one to one and a half seconds. And I mean, that's huge. That, correct. It's, it's, a decent, uh, it's a decent gain for sure. Obviously, there's levels to this. I mean, one to one and a half seconds over a, a one-minute lap time is, is quite dramatically different to two minutes. But I mean, generally, once you've got the car developed, trying to find one second of lap time, not to mention one and a half seconds, that's massive. I mean, the amount of money people would pay for that is, uh, is quite phenomenal. So that really is quite an impressive change. One of the other elements that, that always comes into this with discussions around taking a road car, modified road car, and, and taking it on the track is the compromise that's going to be made and what I mean by this is the suspension setup that we'll use on a dedicated track car almost certainly it's going to have stiffer bump and rebound dampening it's also almost certainly going to have stiffer spring rates than what we'd ideally use on the road. Now when you're talking about these electronically controlled dampers we can of course change that damping curve to suit so that's one element but you're still stuck with a spring rate and that's going to be a compromise one way or the other is it not? Of course with absolutely everything in the automotive industry there is always some form of compromise it's the level of compromise that we're always trying to minimize so yes you're right the spring rate is its primary job is is obviously to support weight we often refer to it as a as a stupid or a dumb part as far as the suspension is concerned but yes, so you know, with attractive systems, for example, there is what we call a touring line kit, which is essentially 70% road, 30% track. So it's done in a way where the spring rates are more tailored around road-going vehicles. However, the valving at its upper limits is beefed up slightly to just offer a little bit more support in the right areas when that person does want to go onto the track. However, in the other, on the other side of the coin, there are road and track kits or what they call a road and track line which have stiffer spring rates, but also the valving is completely beefed up to suit. So these can be driven on the, on the road. We have a fair few customers that daily their cars with this kit with no issue. Once they put into sport mode, the valving can really soften off um, and become quite compliant. But also when the time does come to step it all up into track mode and the spring and, and everything really works together or comes alive as a package. Okay. I think, again, from if I look back to my experience when I was a, a little bit younger and trying to trying to make one car do it all, which obviously is, is flawed, and I think the worst thing you could probably do is dedicate the setup purely for track and then try and live with it on the road because it's going to, first of all, 
be uncomfortable to drive and you might think well no big deal but I can guarantee you when you're sitting in traffic or negotiating a bumpy uh, second rate road that's got roadworks and potholes all over it you'll, you'll regret it uh, but the other element that you need to sort of consider as well is the sort of spring rates that are ideal for a billiard table smooth racetrack are going to be quite high and on these second rate roads that I've just mentioned at speed it can actually be downright dangerous you, you can end up just about having your car bounce off the road so those are some considerations there. As you mentioned there, there are these middle of the road pun intended there compromises but you need to understand that those compromises what they're going to do for you but if you want to have one car that'll do it all unfortunately those are the compromises you're going to have to be making. Just in terms of that DSC controller and these electronic controlled dampers you know how close are we getting to the likes of active suspension obviously back in the F1 active suspension era it was slightly different we didn't have springs at all it was a high speed hydraulic ram that was affecting the performance of the car but I mean I can't help but thinking there's some overlap here with this technology. Yeah, look, obviously, as it is with almost every sport, every year we want to take another step forward. So, I mean, with the electronic damping, the first limitation typically is actually the regulations in motorsport. So looking at uh, some categories, they'll say that the damper package functionality of the car must be the same as what it came out with from the manufacturer. So for cars that didn't come out with electronic suspension, they can no longer use it. As much as we would like to you know, put this great technology in every car, there, it really does come down to the application and the regulations that we're governed by. Sure, of course. Going a little bit broader, given your experience with such a wide range of different platforms and getting them track ready, if you had a blank sheet of paper and a suitably sized checkbook, what would be in your, your eyes the ideal candidate for a road car that could also function really adequately and you could have a lot of fun with on the racetrack? Oh, look, uh, definitely putting me on the spot here, I'll be honest with you. But I mean, for me, it would be looking at uh, a lot of the fundamentals. So I'd be looking for a road car that had a double A-arm suspension is obviously great because I can tune it to perform well in braking, but I can also tune it to perform well in the corners. The first kind of car that I'm thinking of now might be, let's say, uh, you know, um, a Honda S2000, uh, the NSX. Uh, the, you know, there are, a few, there are a few cars out there that exhibit this sort of suspension. The new 992 GT3 feature the, the front double A-arm uh, rear multi-link. So cars like that, we can, uh, you know, really manipulate and play with the camber curves is definitely a benefit as far as on-track capabilities. I think that double ARM suspension also goes across a broader and, and a cheaper uh, sort of spectrum of the Honda vehicles as well, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons, as well as their tunability, why the Honda has become such a popular track date car. So, you know, and NSXs these days, unfortunately, uh, are getting... Uh, almost unobtainium expensive but uh, yeah I mean we've got a, a little EF Honda CRX and uh, the car is an absolute barrel of fun to drive and it just does everything right so can't say enough good things uh, about that uh, car probably not quite at the budget of uh, jumping into a 992 GT3 just yet but uh, yeah I can only see that uh, people are saying really good things about those as well. All right, in terms of alignment, another question that I wanted to talk about here, because you've got experience in, obviously, road racing slash circuit, rally and drag, is the, the differences in, in terms of the way you set up a car for those disciplines. So obviously with a 
track car. You've got a lot of lateral G-force during cornering. The car's braking really hard. So you've got a lot of load transfer around the car, which is going to influence the ideal amount of camber, etc. In terms of setting something up for drag racing, which uh, on face value seems incredibly simple, the car's accelerating from a dead stop to the end of a 400 metre long piece of straight road. I mean, how hard can that be? But when you're starting to maybe put 2,000 horsepower to the track in a maybe an R35 GTR platform, it isn't that simple. And then we've got rally where you're operating on a, on a range of different surfaces with very different grip levels. So again, I can't, obviously we can't get too specific here because there are so many variables, but could you give us some sort of guides on how your approach would differ for those three disciplines? So, yeah, you're 100% right. The three disciplines vary as far as what they need, but they also vary as far as what geometry they prefer. So, you know, looking at a rally car, having something that's McPherson strut front and rear would be, would be, you know, great. However, when you look at that same car and try to put it onto a circuit, it would definitely have its limitations. So as far as how we set them up we step one again is obviously taking a look at the geometry step two would be looking at the wheel and tire package that they have you know how much can i stand the rear camber up on a drag car before i actually start to make contact with bodywork is this car uh, independent uh, rear suspension how much is it going to squat whereas a solid axle car i actually want the rear to separate from the chassis so how am i you know are there any limitations there extremely broad very difficult to answer specifically but there are heaps of variables that need to be looked at when it comes to to each of these disciplines sure i'll just add a little bit from my own experience with the drag application i unfortunately don't have a a huge amount of experience on gravel with rally at this stage but we set up a, a number of cars that in their own right ended up setting world records on the drag strip when they were running and it, it's all about obviously maximising the amount of grip which in turn is about maximising that tyre contact patch and a lot of that comes down to as you were sort of saying understanding the way the geometry, the alignment will change as the car goes into to bump or, or rebound uh, to the point where with uh, an Evo 9 that we built that held the, the late model Evo record and we went to the trouble of, of actually finding out the ride heights front and rear as the car left the line when it launched. So how much it squatted at the rear, how much it would lift at the front. And then we would replicate that stance when we're actually doing the alignment because the rear with the multi-link as it went into to bump travel, it would tend to camber up or gain negative camber, which obviously we don't want. So we'd basically make sure that we had that camber sitting at zero as the car left the line. The other element with that as well is just understanding toe, which is something we haven't really talked about. On a circuit car, uh, this can influence the stability of the car. It can also influence the way that the car will turn into the corner. Obviously, with a drag car, we're not turning into corners, but it can influence the scrub and hence that will affect the terminal speed. So ideally, what we want is in a drag car, zero toe, where all four wheels are pointed dead straight ahead. And the problem with that is that can introduce some high speed instability. So in that instance, it's a bit of a fine line of, of balancing maybe a little bit of toe in to to make sure the car's stable that will also come into the compliance and the suspension as well so what sort of bushes have we got are we talking about spherical bearings rod ends etc that have little to no compliance or is we still talking about rubber bushes so I just wanted to get some of those elements in there that play into what will be the ideal and again there's no black and white here it's a whole lot of 
shades of grey depending on the specifics of the car and, and then understanding what those specifics may mean and that can then guide our direction in terms of what we're going to do. Does that all sort of fall into into sort of what you, you see as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've touched on a pretty good thing there where you replicated the launch condition on the on the patch when you were trying to actually align the car and that's that's quite a smart thing oftentimes when we design cars you know speaking generally here people are looking at the chassis in a static form however when us at dna look at things we try to take into account a lot of the dynamic forces that can actually be at play here so looking at a drag car yes is this car going to tow in on compression is it going to tow out on compression so these things are an important consideration especially because they govern the you know a lot of the stability of the car looking at uh, the back of a Porsche for example we know that they tow in on compression so am I going to get too much stability too much tire scrub mid corner is this going to cause the front to push at what stage can I you know where can I tow it so that I have the just the right amount of rotation in the rear without adding a whole heap of tire drag or or heat to the rear tires which are already under so much load so there's a large amount of of factors here but now you've definitely touched on the right thing it's it is important to look at the dynamic forces at play not just how does this car sit statically this sort of leads on to probably the the last topic that i wanted to cover on this which is corner weighting corner balancing and you brought up this as one of the services you you offer and I mean, in short, for those who have never heard that term, it's a, you'll see this in the pits of just about any professional race meeting where the car is is sort of sitting up on four scales, one under each wheel. And that allows, obviously, the engineer to see the amount of weight applied on each corner of the car. What do you use this process for? What are you trying to adjust as part of it? And of course, the the knock-on effect, how how does this affect the way the car drives or feels to the driver? So the corner balance of a car, again, the importance of it really, or or what part of it is important, really varies on the platform. So if we take a look at a Porsche, for example, which doesn't have an engine in the front, when you apply the brakes, there's going to be a large amount of mass that moves forward. So let's take a car that hasn't been scaled before and, and might have, let's say, 30 kilos or 40 kilos more on the front right statically than the front left if that car was to go through turn one at eastern creek the front right corner would be under an extreme amount of load and then to ask that car to break quite hard into the hairpin at turn two you're asking a fair bit of that tire so that may cause the start of the abs for example that tire may actually trigger the abs whereas the front left is perfectly under control and everything's okay so for a porsche looking at the porsche platform the corner weight in the front would be extremely important Looking at a front engine car, we might look at uh, the cross weight. So we might look at what percentage of the weight is across the diagonal of the car front right to, to rear left. So there are a few different configurations or areas of importance when it comes to corner scaling. But as far as how it feels to the driver, it's not going to be a massive black and white change uh, in feel. However, you may find that a driver says, hey, I was really able to commit a lot more into this corner here under brakes, whereas before I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, again, like everything we've talked about so far in this interview, there's not a lot of black and white here. The other element that we're always going to be compromised with a road-based racing car is that the driver is offset to one side of the vehicle, be it left-hand drive or right-hand drive. So 
I mean, most people on face value would think that you know, we're, we're trying to aim for a, a perfect 25% weight split on each corner of the car. That's almost never going to be the reality, particularly with an offset driver like that. You've just got too much weight in one area of the car to achieve that, which comes down to what you mentioned there. I'll just clarify for, for those who aren't picking up the pieces, cross weight. So you, you did say sort of front right to rear left. We add those up and present them as a percentage of the overall weight of the car. And when we're doing this, the car has to be in race-ready condition. So we've either got the driver in the car or weight that simulates the weight of the driver, a fuel load, whatever you've decided that may be. Obviously, that varies through a race. That's a bit of a difficult one in and of itself. And then we'll be setting that up. So a general guide might be that if we have our cross weight at 50%, that's often a target, not necessarily always a target, but technically the car should feel and respond pretty consistently left to right in terms of turning corners if you've got that that cross weight set up around 50% but hey you might want to bias that if you've got a predominantly clockwise circuit or a predominantly anti-clockwise circuit but you know th- those are the sort of elements. Now, I just wanted to bring back a few years ago we, we had the chance to travel to the UK and um, we ended up uh, visiting a shop that runs some Orica LMP2 cars and talking about the weight balance with those cars obviously that's a more central driving position it's a dedicated race car but they found that if the crossweight on the front axle line, so the difference between the front left and the front right, were more than about three to four kgs, that would result in the potential for locking of the, the lightly loaded corner of the car. So that's how sensitive it can be at the professional level. Now, in terms of making these changes, how do you actually move weight around the car? Are we physically moving objects in the car or, or what, what are the tools you've got available to achieve this? So taking a production car where, you know, we can't necessarily move seats or move, you know, dry sump tanks or battery positions and things like that. So taking a production car, essentially this is done through the coilovers. So changing the preload on each spring at each corner will allow us to shift weight off one corner and onto another. And obviously the stiffness of the chassis. So does this car have a roll cage? Does it not have a roll cage? Also plays a big role in how much preload will move how much weight. So it, it also gives us a good understanding of, you know, do I, did I need to raise this spring seat 10 mil in order to move three kilos or did I do one turn of the spring seat and fire eight kilos to the other side of the car? So that also gives us a pretty good insight as to the stiffness of the chassis. Yeah, it's such a good point. I hadn't really considered that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if you've got a an old road car with no roll cage in it, the compliance in that chassis is going to be quite significant. And I could imagine, yeah, you, w- you would need to move that coil over uh, significantly more in order to jack the weight around the car. In terms of this, we're kind of compromising potentially our ride height or our bump and rebound travel. Do you kind of have a rule of thumb of how far you will go in terms of making a ride height change at one corner to adjust the, the corner weight versus, you know, you sort of might be improving the potential corner weighting but actually making the car worse in, in other regards? Or again, is that just too specific to the chassis yeah look definitely specific to the chassis and specific to the geometry every car has its uh, its happy place you know so to speak so i do have little rules for different uh, geometries different types of of chassis but uh, yeah you know very very difficult to kind of answer in one in one sentence because they all need something different the, the location of the engine the stiffness of the chassis it all really plays a massive role 
Alright Andre, I think we'll move towards wrapping this thing up and we've got the same three questions we ask all of our guests. The first of those is, what's next in the future for you and DNA Autosport? What's the big plans? Oh look, um, you know, we're always trying to be at absolute minimum better tomorrow than we were yesterday. We often have to remind people that although we consider ourselves professionals, we're still learning every day. We always come across a different type of driver, different type of car, different tire setup, things like that. So the, the rate at which we gain our knowledge and gain our information is extremely important and we're always focusing on that. As far as what's next, I mean, we would really like to continue exploring different products that may, you know, fill certain holes in the market or open up a new bespoke avenue to a lot of our clients that have the the one-off race cars and things like that. So that's the current focus uh, at the moment. We're in the in the research stages of some pretty interesting things at the moment. Yeah, sounds sounds fun. I mean, I think in general, one of the great things about the automotive industry is that you're you're never done learning. You you can't sort of close the book and say, "Yep, I, I know it all now." And I think it's really important for anyone operating in a business like yourself to to sort of stay humble and and realize that this is always going to be a, a, a continuous evolution and opportunity to to keep learning. But for me, that's that's why uh, even twenty odd years on, I'm I'm still super passionate about the industry. Next question for you, Andre, is there any advice you give to a younger version of yourself to help reach where you've got to in your career faster maybe? Look, to be honest with you, in the engineering industry, a lot of your success really comes down to your experience. So as far as getting to where I am faster, I I wouldn't really prioritize the speed. I I think what's important is to stay grounded, but also really place a focus on knowledge over, you know, obviously with respect to people's positions, but put a, a larger uh, effect on on knowledge or priority on knowledge rather than your current financial situation. So if you have the opportunity to work for, you know, a great engineer or, or work for a great team, but there might be a small pay cut or something in order to do so, then uh, I think taking that that opportunity has more benefits in the long run. Yeah, I think it can be hard maybe in the heat of the moment, but trying to keep an eye to the big picture, you know, maybe not what tomorrow is going to look like, but what three years, five years, 10 years down the track is going to look like and whether an opportunity, as you say, maybe with a financial cut still actually plays out better for your long-term goals. But I mean, that's uh, obviously going to be a very individual decision that everyone's going to to need to make. I think I I like your advice there, though, that uh, maybe trying to fast-track an engineering-based position Maybe, maybe not even viable. So, yeah, not not everything lends itself to fast tracking. Last question for you today: If people want to find out more about you, find out more about uh, DNA Autosport, and follow along, uh, how are they best to do so? You've got some social media channels and websites for us. Uh, yeah, we're quite active on uh, you know Facebook and Instagram. If you just uh, search up DNA uh, Autosport, you'll come across our pages pretty quickly. Otherwise, if if you'd like a pretty good snapshot of of who we are and what we do as a business, uh, you know, heading over to dnaautosport.com.au is a is a great way to do that. Perfect. Uh, great to have a chat to you today, Andre. And uh, next time we're over at, in Sydney for World Time Attack, we might see if we can take the opportunity to come and actually do a, a shop tour as well. But uh, great to chat and we wish you all the best. No, cheers, uh, Andre. Thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate it.
If you've enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Andre, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to Lulert from Norway who has said Exciting and informative, if you're just starting out or you've been into cars for years this is the number one podcast to listen to. I've been working on cars for 20 plus years now and I still learn something new from this show. Well thanks for the kind words and if you get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details we'll fire a fresh tea off straight out to you. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.